0: Hello, and welcome to Into the Void with Will Adolphy. Today I chatted with Stephen Jenkinson. So, Stephen is an author, a canoe builder, a farmer, founder of the Orphan Wisdom School. He spent 20 years working in palliative care and he's been touring the world for the last five years in his band. This one was a genuine dream for me after researching Stephen's work heavily for the last year to actually speak to the man himself was just an absolute treat. I felt like I was in the presence of an elder wondering about life and all I could do was just sit in awe and learn as a student. (laughs) So it was a real privilege to chat with him and I really hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Without further ado, Stephen Jenkinson. Well, thank you so much. We'll get straight to it. I okay can't tell you how excited I've been to, to chat with you, Stephen.
1: Um, You're very kind. Well, thanks. I hope I'll, I'll try to keep up the standard.
0: <laughs> well, you've set a high standard from what I've seen. So, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm really looking forward to it. Um, I'd say about just to introduce you to, well, my listeners, um, about a year ago i was I was listening to a podcast, and it was obviously with yourself and I was on a train, and I remember it very distinctly i can't remember what you were saying, but I do remember <laughs> feeling absolutely riveted by the story you were telling and and also very uncomfortable at the same time
1: mm.
0: Mm. <laughs> which I'm sure you get rather a lot. Um,
1: it's true but I have never heard it as anything other than an unwilling compliment.
0: Mm. oh it's a compliment. It's uh, yeah it's a compliment for sure and that's why I say it and um, it your story it's struck with me. Uh, it stuck with me for a long time, a long time and I didn't finish the podcast. I was eerily unsettled and mm-hmm. and I didn't want to touch the topic again. Right.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: but, and I now can draw or make perhaps a correlation because the next time I looked you up was during our, our lockdown when it first started. And I don't know mm-hmm. whether that was a coincidence or not, but that is when I, I actually read your book, Die Wise. And um, I a couple of podcasts ago, I did a podcast to our listeners. I, I read some quotes and I, I went through it because it is the most profound book i think i've ever read and i have grappled with it for many months now and so my i know that there's a, a good few listeners who are rather excited to have you on a couple of mm. episodes later so that's that's why i was so excited but i just want to tell you how grateful to i am to have you here today because to have chanced upon your work in, in my lifetime i i do feel very lucky to have discovered it because Yeah, as I think we're going to get into today, I think it's just incredibly enriching and very engaging. So Mm -hmm. let's let's dive straight in. Okay, Um, It's no secret you've (laughs) you've lived a very interesting life. I mean, alongside your your master's degrees in social work and theology, you're you're a farmer, a canoe builder. You've won an award in architecture. You've worked extensively in palliative care, and you're essentially the lead in a band that's been touring the world, which we're definitely going to touch upon. Um, and alongside, you know, the books that you've written. So I've just, I just love to start, perhaps with your journey into palliative care and what it was, Stephen, that that drew you to this this line of work.
1: Mm. Uh, to be honest, nothing drew me. I didn't know the thing existed uh, until I was into my forties. So it was no there was no hankering. There was no you know keeping me awake at night. How can I get in? Uh, no childhood dream of sitting at people's deathbeds. Yeah. nothing of the kind. <laughs> no. So I think if I were to insinuate a story from the way it happened, uh, I would probably say something like, "I was being readied without my consent, mm. uh, without even being um, uh, notified, never mind consulted." And uh, that readiness, somewhere along the line, apparently, I, it was I was ready enough, or I was as ready as I was going to be, maybe. And uh, the thing suddenly leapt out of the closet. And uh, draped itself around my neck mm. and had no intention apparently of letting go. That's the way I tell the story now if I if I were to try to make sense of the thing that I had very little uh, part to play in its initiation or or in uh, in the early going mm. and the, and you know given all of that, I, I hope that doesn't sound too self-satisfied but yeah. I mean there's no sen- there's no sense lying and pretending that I wasn't in the, the general zone that I was supposed to be in by that time in my life. I clearly was because when I ended up in the first home of the first dying person who turned out to be a physician, and um, I knew what I was doing there. I'd never done it before. But I, I don't say that I had nothing to learn. Certainly that's not true. but And it's not a matter of confidence, It's a matter of uh, something like vocation. Mm. Uh, Simply the vocation had uh, claimed me and proven itself to me by not abandoning me when I sat there in a most intimidating circumstance with a dying physician surrounded by the nameplates from all the professional organizations and all the offices that he inhabited over the course of his life. In other words, he was surrounded by his name 500 times, in case he you know, forgot it as he was in swoon. And um, I had some sense of presence about the whole matter, and uh, an instinct that was um, drawn upon, and uh, what a, I mean, there's a, almost a giddiness there in terms of the good fortune that that uh, scrawled itself across my forehead at that moment. Mm. And it's never really subsided. Wow. Yeah, that's 25 or so years ago now.
0: Mm. Wow. Wow. Well, I mean, I think this deaf phobia and, and in particular my initial discomfort, I think would be a great place to kind of start a discussion. I'm just wondering, straight up really. Why do you think people are so we we feel so uncomfortable just at the mere thought of death and mm-hmm. I've seen you in many interviews, you acknowledge that you're not you're not being an advocate for this. If you're invited to talk, you will talk and mm-hmm. your book is available um and you are you're a faithful witness to what you saw. Um mm. But in my experience, when I I read the book, I go straight in <laughs> with these discussions with my friends and we'll talk about this in a, a little bit, but it's met with this same uh, defensiveness. Mm-hmm. And I just wondered in your experience and opinion where you think this all comes from.
1: I don't know if... It- If I'd answer the question in the terms that it's asked, I'm not sure that it all comes from anywhere, as if there's a magical malignant spring that we've all drunk from over the years without realizing it. I think it's, uh, first of all, to give the anxiety its due, um, it's legitimate, is it not? To be unnerved (laughs) at the prospect of not being around anymore. I mean, as far as you know, That's all you know, that you have been around as long as there's been a you. I mean, it sounds painfully obvious to say it, but it's not bad to say it every once in a while. You know, to experiment with your disappearance from the scene. You can't experiment with it if you don't literally say it aloud. So there was a time I came to be, and virtually all of it will continue without me and there's something about that that's it's almost hard to think Mm. never mind to make peace with or even to feel good about or to have a breezy conversation with your neighbors over okay so that's legit that counts you know and i'm i'm not i wouldn't call that death phobia Mm. i would call that um mortality uh, whispering in your ear but there's there's being unnerved by things, and then there's a steady diet of discontinuity with it, or or a, a, a kind of relentless unwillingness to live as if it's true. That's of a different order, right. and that's probably what you're asking me about. So yeah. that has certain certain and clear historical precedent, and. Um, Uh, Speaking as a North American now, a lot of the origin of our death phobia here is a consequence of the Middle Passage, as it used to be called, the great spontaneous mass migration from your country, among others, to this country, among others. And, you know, that might sound like a tired and unnecessarily dusty answer to your question until you consider, first of all, who came. And the people who came could afford to come, number one. And number two, didn't have much to stay for. So they weren't the champions of your culture. They were the refugees of your culture. And yet they were their refugee hood was so uh, involuntary that they dragged it with them. Mm. And when they arrived here, I'm going to say it differently, when you arrived here... <laughs> the consequences of that for the indigenous people uh, is, is a story still being told, basically for the first time. And, um, uh, but the amazing thing is that uh, for all the claim that you had of wanting to leave your old country, your old ways behind, the first thing you did is unpack from your uh, seat trunk all of the things that you were trying to abandon and, uh, and be free of. And uh, if you need any evidence of that, just consider the fact that the place that you landed, uh, the Americans love to call it Plymouth Rock. Mm. Of course, you know where Plymouth is, and it's not in New England. But that's the point I wanted to make. Of all the things to call the place that you've come to for a new start, New England would not be the most obvious thing to call it. And of course, there's nothing new about England, is there nothing new about it at all? And so, as I've often said in my school, what it should have been called is England again. (laughs) And that's essentially what America is, is a European fantasy. Not just English, but certainly England and its fantasies played an enormous role in crafting the America that the entire world is burdened by now you might be wondering, what does this have to do with the question you asked me? And the answer is, when you came over here and became us, one of the things that you lost and left behind was a kind of cultural continuity that is so fundamental to answering the fundamental questions of a human's life. In other words, if we're left to our own devices, our own strategies, and so on, generally forms the proceedings. When you are on the receiving end of a cultural continuity, no matter how how patchy it might be over the centuries, still the continuity itself has some reassurance about it, and you are on the receiving end of a sequence of stories and understandings and ways of life that give your life its reasons and purposes and directions Mm -hmm. and gives your death its full meaning and understanding and place. Without that, you are trying to be a self-starter in a land where your very self is the first and proper casualty of these realizations. So you begin to realize that there's a whole history that doesn't seem to have been written or doesn't seem to be being talked about. And the best way to illustrate it, and I can end the answer with this, Mm. is I've been honored to teach in your country frequently. Mm. And uh, when I do so, typically, uh, apropos of nothing in particular, I will stop the proceedings and look at them very directly or look at you directly and say, do you ever think of us? And virtually to a person in that room, they will look down in an embarrassed way or they'll look out the window or they'll look at the ceiling or they'll look away or they'll wish I hadn't asked or they won't know what to say. But we all know what the answer is. The answer is no. You never think of us. Mm. And so the next thing I say is, now ask me if we ever think of you. And the answer is all the time.
0: Well, I'm very intrigued because this... and uh, thank you for distinguishing um, because that was really important. Um, I know that you're, uh, you have such a keen eye for language and I've always... I'm trying that. to take care of your language, man. You're <laughs> the mothership. No, I appreciate that. Thank you for looking out for me, but... I've sure. I, I've made some notes to ah uh, well because whenever I watch your your interviews I you remind me of a Freudian psychoanalyst who whenever <laughs> is answered a, a question you are able mm-hmm. to very much pick out something in the question it's you know we don't handle deaf deaf handles us whatever it may right. be and right. just then in that question I uh, you made me realise that I'm. I feel very rooted within this language of that, of a culture that I'm now becoming aware to. Mm -hmm. And you were born in this culture, right? Um, and you then had your experiences. I'm just wondering whether it was the experiences that opened your eyes to this, I guess you could say reality, um, or was it something that was brewing before? Um, I'm just very intrigued to see whether it was a turning point for you, um, mm-hmm. whether you went from someone who was steeped in this language that we have, that I have. Um, how how did you get? To, well, how did you get to writing a book like Die Wise? I guess that is my question.
1: Mm-hmm. Or your question could be better stated. So, how did I get like me?
0: <laughs> That's a very simple yeah. way of saying it. Thank you, Stephen. Yeah. Take the questions.
1: Sure. Um, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a mosaic, right? I'm a, a sort of conglomerate. I'm a, I'm a consequence rather than a cause. So I, I was obviously surrounded by English-speaking people. My grandparents came over when they were babies from England in the 1900 whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it wasn't that far away although nobody around me had a lived experience of of the UK. But uh, it was in the phrasing, you know, I remember my grandfather making a joke about the ass end of a turkey referred to it as the pope's nose. <laughs> and I had no idea where that came from or what it meant and it had to be explained to me later as as a basically a, a residue from the Loyal Order of the Orange, right? Mm. That's where it came from, and I, I knew nothing about this stuff. And so, obviously, like so many people, I'm I'm in a soup <laughs> that I'm being fed by, but can't taste. That's that could be your early years. You could. That's not a bad description of it, and and uh, your language, whatever it might be whatever condition it is and whatever level or degree that it's respected and spoken in your home and then subsequently in your education it's it's more than just a, a means of you know trafficking in notions or ideas or intents it's it's a universe that's what a language is it's a it's a uh, a web of connectedness and and uh, it's a snakes and ladders of uh, existence and And so on, so so it carries with it a lot of uh, at-hand answers to things that you don't know how to ask. And the the reason I suppose I've I've attended language so much, aside from the fact that it's my stock and trade, is that uh, it was probably for me a kind of a way of. um, I was going to say surviving. I, I, I guess I'll go with that it was language for me the English language was uh a house uh, that I was lucky enough to get to live in yeah. until I realized that I had to start taking care of it that it wasn't that it wasn't a self um it wasn't a airbnb arrangement let's put it that way <laughs> okay. that it was I had a responsibility to the thing that had so enabled my thinking and given me ways of thinking about things and so on. And, of course, the English language is much maligned and in the marketplace of ideas, it's horribly disformed, disfigured, in the political sphere, even worse, and in the marketplace proper, even worse again. And English, of course, has become the de facto mother language of uh, the Internet. And uh, it's built on the binary oppositionality of, uh, of the English language, of a certain aspect of the English language. This is more detailed than you really wanted to know about, I'm sure, but Please. Uh, what I'm trying to give you a feel for <clears throat> is that it's not really dying. I'm not the death guy. I'm the wondering about death by trying to do justice to the language guy. Mm. And I, I can tell you how that happened. Uh, it was no plan of mine. But I do recall distinctly that in my very early time in the death trade, I knew almost immediately that I was being surrounded by, spoken to with, supervised, and administered to with a language that that had no contact with the realities of dying. Hmm. One more detail about that. I was elevated, I think, probably artificially to become a a professor at a a school of medicine, University of Toronto School of Medicine. And it was a kind of honorary thing uh, in some fashion. But uh, I did get an opportunity to work at the level of developing curriculum for doctors in working with dying people. And the amazing thing was that nobody in the school, be they faculty or student, deemed it necessary <clears throat> to teach doctors how to talk dying. Nobody thought it was a, a anything in particular. Or you could say they all thought that they knew how to do that already. And if you'd asked them, well, wait a minute, where did you learn how to where did you learn how to apply a catheter? Where did you learn how to do the IV work that you're doing? Where did you learn all these other things? And the answer is you were instructed and then you practiced and you made mistakes and hopefully they were corrected and so on and so forth eventually you're hired to do it well where did you learn how to talk dying because there was no part of the curriculum that was vaguely interested in the notion Mm. they thought in other words that they knew how to do what i was doing plus all the stuff that they knew how to do that they were doing as if talking death with dying people was a foregone uh, skill that anybody with an inclination to be there already had and i'm here to tell you nothing could have been further from the truth so that when i was instructing i one moment is is particularly memorable i said to them which organ in your body is most heavily employed in the application of palliative measures to dying people and they all looked at me like man I have to deal with this guy for the whole year for <laughs> how are we going to get through this. Yeah. This is so unnecessary. But I, you know, I pressed them. I pressed them. And finally, you know, they would point to their mind or the more new age of them would point to their chest where their heart apparently lay or other places. And they all got it wrong, you see. And so I said, not one of you have even come close. So let me show you um, uh, Silently. And I stuck out my tongue and I pointed to it. I said, do you understand what I'm telling you? You don't even think about it. But this thing you employ every day, all day long, to see to it that dying people understand themselves to be dying people, you pay absolutely no attention to. And so then I knew it was my responsibility to find a language wherein the realities of dying could appear when I spoke. And um, at least you and I agree that I, I, I came at least close.
0: Yes, definitely. I mean, I mean it's, it is, it's funny you, you mentioned this idea of, of a different language because it does have that effect. You do feel like you are reading a cultural narrative rooted within language that is very alien to our own. And Mm. that I feel for me is where the discomfort comes from. But that was a a Mm. wonderful answer and very detailed and makes so much sense. I think what I picked up from there was I found myself asking, Stephen, you know, why is it that we can't distinguish wallowing from acknowledging one's own Mm. death? Mm -hmm. That seems to be at the heart of why I see so many people who have this idea that they have quote unquote, accepted their own death, mm-hmm.
1: but gone. Well, it's a ludicrous standard accepting your death, yeah. but let's go back to wallowing. First of all, Okay. Yeah. Uh, you've got me on a day when we're deeply involved in butchering, slaughtering and butchering here on the farm All oh, right. and we killed our last two pigs in the farm here yesterday and did a, the lion share of the butchering today. I've seen wallowing. Nobody on the farm who wallows wishes they weren't. Okay, there's the first thing to observe. Of all the words to use, you're describing a pig in pig heaven when you use the word wallowing. And they're, they're seeking and finding a degree of solace uh, in a waterhole or a mud, a mud bath that they can't find in any other way. And it does them well. So if that's what wallowing is, well... Let's say, maybe that's what it should be. So uh, there's a a bit of denigration of pigs and barnyards and things like that in the phrase. But, uh, you know, going beyond that, uh, does wallowing mean you'll continue to return to the initial thought that, oh, my God, I'm actually going to die? And this constitutes some kind of cruel and unusual punishment? How else are you to live a life that is informed by your limits, Then to revisit them with some frequency. Hmm. And to characterize that as wallowing is, if I may say, it's a kind of malpractice of a human's work. Hmm. Yeah? Hmm. Yeah, and malpractice is a, is a heavy word in the trade that I was working in. So, we have an obligation to wallow, if you will. We have an obligation to bathe ourselves in the eventualities. Failure to do so, well, the, the consequences are demonstrable around us. At least where I live, and presumably you understand at least what I'm saying about this, that, that the inability to take dying for the love letter that it is, mm. is a kind of spiritual illiteracy that almost has no solution. So why did I use the word literacy of all things? Because I'm suggesting to you that your own death has to be learned, not coped with, not, what was the word used? Accepted. Accepted, yes. Yeah, learned. Look, you have no obligation to, quote, accept the fact that you don't get to be around for a long time either with a shrug or with a sense of resignation or defeat or or any of standard repertoire of acceptance. You have an obligation, if you will, to live an uneasy alliance with a part of the deal that you don't get a vote on. And for North Americans, um, you know, the U.S. people in particular, this is a horrendous thing not to have a vote on something that affects you directly mm. they they just can't they just can't stomach the prospect and of course the the current virus is demonstrating to them the uh the terrible dead-endness of this orientation of personal rights and freedoms that are that are so much yeah. fodder for what's happening you know so i won't veer into that subject too much at the moment but yes. just to say finally that to craft a language where the realities of dying are available to you when you speak, is a kind of fingering the ro the beads on the rosary of how it is. And uh, we just you mentioned earlier about a band and so on. So we just released a couple of records and on on one of them there's a, a line that I say that I'll see if I can remember it. It's something like, you know, you get to be human, but for a while. Mm-hmm. You get to be something flirting with completely utterly or totally human and it turns out that one of the conditions of your full humanity is the recognition that it won't last no matter how fully human you are and that ironically is what fully human actually means Mm.
0: So how humane you can be whilst
1: you die? How humane you can be engaging things that seduce you otherwise. Ah. See, it's beyond your personal performance there in the third act of your life. Certainly, that's true what you said, but it's not. There's not enough true in it to go along with it for, for me. Yeah. So I modify it slightly and say, you know, the way you die, no matter what your declaration might be about it, is probably the most autobiographical declaration you're likely to make. <laughs> it's right up there with mate selection, you know, and a few other of the biggies.
0: That's so true.
1: Because you're going to die the way you lived. No matter what your intention is, that's what you'll do because that's what your repertoire is, and that's what you'll be drawing from. And you'll get to a point, very likely, if you have not lived as if this is true, there in the third act, you'll be wondering about the, the threadbareness and the poverty of what you're coming up with. Mm-hmm. And it's the answer is, honey, it was always that way, but you've waited until now to find out. And there's such a thing amongst grown ups as too late.
0: I remember hearing you say, do you remember me? This is going to be a paraphrase. Something like, mm-hmm. dying could either be the, the last manifestation of everything you know to be human, or the undoing of every manifestation you know of what it means to be human. Mm. And. It's rather strange, because when I read that, I found myself asking, well, what does it mean to be human?
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's my prompt, hopefully. Yeah, that is your
0: prompt, yeah. (laughs) Exactly.
1: So, you know, you've brought the two words forward, so let's linger over them for a moment. We have the word human Mm -hmm. among us. And uh, we might use it from time to time. When we do, it seems to me that we rarely do so in an inquiring way. We often do so in a declarative way, a kind of fait accompli way. So as if we all know what human is, Mm -hmm. as if we're all human all the time. Now, if that's true, I'm going out on a limb here and we're going to lose some listeners. (laughs) But what the heck. It's fun. If everything I just said is so, Why do we have a word in the English language, human with an E on the end? If you're willing to know it for what it is, you'll recognize a confession in that edition of the letter E. And what's it confessing? That humans are capable, more than capable, of not being human. And so we reserve the word humane for the times when we're being human and inhumane for the times that we're not. So here's a question. When we're not being humane, are we human in those moments? And if we're not, what would you call us then? Wow. Yeah. In other wow. words, I'm talking about the 20th century, just for starters. <laughs> well, right?
0: well, I don't think many... And I'm talking
1: about... Uh, sorry, uh, I'll just no, finish please. this. Uh, and, and the other thing I'm talking about is, is very much what the two records we just released are about. This concern that I, that I continue to be visited by and, and claimed by. What kind of world are the people of my age group leaving to the people of yours? Mm. What have we done with the garden that was entrusted to us? You see, how can we claim, for example, having been such extraordinary and unashamedly beneficiaries of what was available to us, how can we in good conscience look out over the full display of our performance in the last 40 or 50 years and look your generation in the eye while we're doing it. I mean, but really, you know, without a without being defended, self-defending, without explanation, just recognizing that whatever we come up with doesn't change the deal. And the notion that we can be readily forgiven by young people is a deeply unexamined proposition mm-hmm. by people of my age mm-hmm. and people of my age are clamoring to be recognized as elders jesus murphy
0: <laughs> yeah well it definitely seems like not many people are thinking about a time when they're not going to be here mm-hmm. No, we're not really concerned with that, and particularly in this competence riddled culture. Like, I feel an urge within me to turn everything you're saying in and find a way of practically applying it to my life in like a how-to mm-hmm. method. Right? Mm-hmm. I want to yeah. ask you straight up, Stephen. How can I let death, like all my meditations on death, make my days, quote unquote, better? Like that is where I kind of, I'm born in that I want to make my days better. If I don't see what you're saying as it having a practical application, then I don't see any point in learning it because it's not going to improve my life. And I'm sure you must run into that, that quite a lot.
1: (laughs) I suppose so. It's a bit of a dead end, the whole thought that how can I translate this into self-improvement yeah. readily within 24 hours? It's a bit of a dead end. <laughs> but okay, okay, fair <laughs> enough. Um, I don't actually have much regard. I'm going to confess something here. I don't have much regard for the question. Not not you asking it, but the actual terms of the question, I think are, are beginners, entry-level, amateurish stuff. Mm. The notion that you should be able to translate any worthy thing into something that benefits you more or less immediately. Mm. Okay, that's, uh, that's poor stuff. Okay, here's the next thing. The terms that you asked the question foreclose almost any real answer that I would have to give you. Mm. If I honestly tried to answer the question in those terms, I'd have to bullshit you. <laughs> yes. I'd have to lie to you. I'd have to seduce you, you see. And as you might guess, I'm refusing to do all those things. So I could tell you the story instead. So a mom gets in touch with me some considerable years ago now. And she says um, something like this. So I've just read Die Wise. It's very exciting. My father's dying, so it's very timely. He's dying in my care. Uh, we weren't always terribly close, but we're pretty close now. And so my question is a simple one to you. My father's refusing to talk with me about his dying. Otherwise, things are going pretty well. So the question is, how can I give him a die-wise death (laughs) and at the same time respect his utter unwillingness to talk about dying? See? It's a dead-end question. And so the answer I had to give her was, you can't. And she stopped dead she couldn't actually hear that you can't so why did i say you can't or why am i saying this to you it's because the terms of the question foreclose the realities that you need to know about to do the translating into something that deepens your life rather than betters it if i may put it this way that batters it more than betters it mm. okay So if you say, how can I respect my father's decision not to talk about my dying? My answer is, why should you be respecting that? You see, I ask a question about the question. Why should you respect your father's withdrawal from the scene? In the presence of a a woman that he brought helped bring into this world. There at the moment when he's in his last great act of paternity does he turn it into an exercise of personal right of withdrawal and this is to be respected it's not to be respected so you have to choose a die wise death or be complicit in his silence Mm. and you can hear which one I'm advocating so it's the same thing in you know the terms of the question you asked me when you come to a uh, at the level of companionship with your death what makes you think that your life will be better in any conscionable way as a result of that where does that notion come from you see you might say what's the point I said, well that's a different question but I'm I'm promising you this that d- that your dying is not there to tell you everything's going to be okay like the third parent you never had Your dying is there to say, I am your faithful companion. I will not blink. I will not have too much to drink and follow somebody else home. And when the time comes, I will be sitting at the end of your bed when no one else is looking, asking you whether or not you have any questions. Now, we can get to know each other well before then, but that's up to you. But understand that getting to know me will not make you the life of the party, will not give you an inalienable sense of well-being that will sustain you and make you happy. Your death has no obligation to entertain you or to reassure you. Your death comes to you asking things of you, not doing things to you it's time to be a grown-up when you're dying
0: Mm. yeah
1: it's can you imagine can you imagine having small talk about this
0: (laughs) it's not much can't be done cocktail party (laughs) topic and i'm not gonna lie Stephen. now's probably the right time to mention that after reading your book i did try to bring it up on a, a first date and yeah uh, it didn't really yeah, didn't really go down well. Um, no but I, th- I was saying that last question um, in the awareness of, of how it was a stupid question, but:,
1: okay, that, I didn't say that it was.
0: No, no okay, no, no. just so
1: we're clear. You may characterize it that way, but I'm not. I'm not in any way demeaning you or the question. Mm. I'm simply you know I characterize it as a dead end. It dictates the terms of its answer. It, it handcuffs me by obliging me to agree with you that your dying is supposed to make you feel better and have a nice day. And so I, you know, I very clearly said to you, it has no such obligation. Mm. It's not to say that it won't happen from time to time, but that's not what it's there for. It's there to deepen your days, not to distract you from them.
0: Do you think that part of the reason that i'm let's just use me as an example make it personal i'm so obsessed with this bettering and i can't make sense out of something that isn't going to better me so why would i do it and that comes from my relationship with pain really and sadness and how i don't Mm -hmm. I don't really, and this is me initially, before kind of grappling with these ideas, it's definitely shifted the way I kind of talk about these things. But that brings me to grief, which I'd love to touch upon with you and, and also talk about your um, your new music as well at some point, which we will get to. But yeah, I, you, you mentioned in the book, we need grief practitioners.
1: Mm. And this... Not just, grief teachers.
0: Not grief teachers.
1: Until they become the same thing.
0: Until they become the same thing, and how grief is a skill. <laughs> this blew me. This blew me away. This bit of the book, uh, particularly because I was approaching some grief. Actually, um, I had no idea, and that and you know, this saying that you have as well, which I'd love to use as for your next prompt. And and again, please correct me, but you say. Grief is a way of loving that which has slipped from view. Mm -hmm. And therefore, loving is a way of grieving that which is yet to do so. Mm -hmm. It's that second bit, Stephen, that Mm -hmm. takes me, well, still wrapping my head around it, but to Mm -hmm. me it indicates that loving, in a sense, is a recognition of the temporary nature of existence.
1: You got it no recognition of that kind, no love. Hmm. It could be other things, okay, and and no doubt it is. Could be fascination, could be rapture, could be hope, right? could be seeking after shelter in a storm, could be, you know, 15 or 20 completely legitimate and admirable things, but it ain't love if there's no end in it. Hmm. And of course... (laughs) if you think about every friggin you know holiday card or uh, you know any of the any place where the culture gets to you know write a 10 second remedy that includes love invariably it'll suggest that love will just make you feel better it'll just it's just like that it's just magic it's the greatest thing it's it's crack cocaine without the <laughs> hangover like it can't be it doesn't get better and so on it and it you know this is this is deeply (laughs) disrespectful of the project of loving and so yeah i mean i i like the waltz aspect of that that parallelism that you quoted i hadn't thought about that for a long time that that grief is a way of loving i mean it's very rare that people will object to that they recognize in their own sorrows a longing after somebody who's dead and gone for example and they recognize love in that longing and properly so because no doubt it's there and all of this uh, contributes to the notion that memory itself is an act of love and it is certainly it is and it's more than that because it invites a lot of hurt memory does Mm. it's one of the reasons that there's so much self-medication that goes on you know across the culture that can afford to self-medicate but the notion that grief is a kind of love yes but that love is a kind of grief surely love is there to minimize grief to anesthetize grief to euthanize grief surely if you have enough love you have no grief. Do you, do you hear the, the formula involuntarily you know, muttering itself in its canto? So I'm suggesting by that formulation that the ability to love is the ability to recognize the limitation of that love in time, in place, in consequence, in endurance, so many things. And the willingness to love, given all of that, is a willingness to love informed by the grief of that realization. Mm. It's not a formula. It's an understanding that will undo you routinely when you realize how unwilling you are to carry it around with you. Mm. But it carries you around with it, not to worry. And eventually, you get more opportunities than you wish you had that life will deliver to you To recognize the kinship between love and grief they are kin one to the other and you are the child of both once your heart learns that the solution to heartbreak is not less heart and therefore less brokenness there is no solution to heartbreak it's not a problem to solve it's a consequence of having one Leonard Cohen, countryman of mine, and uh, gifted in the language in ways that most of us can't dream, wrote an entire song about this called, There Ain't No Cure for Love. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's not a problem to solve. It's a skill to be cultivated.
0: reminds me of uh, a moment in well the couple of podcasts ago we mentioned it uh, there was a, a podcast his mother was dying and he was asking her you know about the heart ache and the heartbreak what does he do and she simply said you cry <laughs> and mm-hmm. that just really made me think of that and it's so it's just so it seems so simple when when you say it like that but we are so like drawn to getting rid of our pain and this sadness we don't see it as woven into the benevolent fabric of life itself we we kind of mm. want we want life without the preciousness no or we want the preciousness but without the sadness perhaps and
1: With, without the precious sadness okay yeah you know there's a word in your language, the one you've bequested to me, the word is anesthetic. This is partly what you're talking about now without using the word, that people come to the prospect of love seeking after an anesthetic. And what's an anesthetic? Well, if it's a topical anesthetic, it's there to to numb the entry point of some kind of radical intrusion or penetration into your body or or your life, or your psyche, or your purpose, or whatever it is. And if it's a more uh, kind of global uh, anaesthetic, then it numbs you to the presence of many things that are unwelcome. And then investigate the etymology of the word. The prefix is the negating prefix, as we would recognize. And the root word is aesthetic. Who ever imagined... That the root word for our phrase to numb ourselves to what we don't welcome has the word beauty there in its midst. Wow. So what is anesthesi- what is anesthetizing yourself actually doing? It's disabling you where beauty is concerned. That's what the word actually means. Okay, so what beauty are we talking about? The beauty of the three-dimensional 360-degree radius of an intensely and fully occupied life that at least includes as much stuff you'd never welcome as it does include the stuff that you're seeking for. Wow. Mm. That is you can't make this beautiful. stuff up. All you have to do is observe it.
0: That is so you beautiful. See? Isn't it? <laughs> it's wondrous. That really is wondrous. Mm. Um, mm. I have to. I have to ask this question because, I. While I have you here, um, one of the things that I was trying to grapple with as as I was reading your book was. In my head, I was like, "Well, no, this isn't a." you're not making the point that we should get rid of medicine. And um, I remember hearing that you were a meningitis survivor as a child as well. So I know that you're not right. advocating for that at all. But in my no. mind, I was asking the question of, well, when is it? When do we say, OK, this is my time to die? Hmm. When do we start turning towards death? Because there's always that chance, isn't there, that you might, Well, you might survive this during and have a little bit, quote unquote, more time. Um, So Mm -hmm. I just wanted to put forward is that's not a good way of saying the question, but you get what I'm leaning into there.
1: I, I think so. Great. Yeah. Okay. so the notion that there's such a thing as your time to die is an important thing to isolate from what you were asking about. Yeah. So let's, you know, for the sake of the people listening, let's just let it stand there for a second. There is such a thing as your time to die. There's also such a thing as the technology currently available to thwart that fact. OK, so there was a time when you didn't have, quote, a choice, and that's called most of human history. And suddenly we have this chimera of a choice, this ghost of a choice this desert demon of a choice that pretends that it's offering us more what it's offering us is more death Hmm. death on the installment plan see that's what the more time will be lived in the presence of you see but nobody says that do they when they're talking about more time it they're immediately picturing more time with the dog in the park more time with the grandchildren more time to play and frolic and cavort well maybe maybe but if your if your body is already to a certain degree visited by temporality just the passage of time the chances are very good that you will have an increasingly constant diet of the consequences of refusing to go along with the deal when it came to you and nobody says that do they that's not on the prescription pad is it that's not what the helpful psychological practitioner is likely to say to you god wait a minute you had a chance to die on schedule and you didn't what were you thinking (laughs) nobody will say that (laughs) well i would probably and not have a job you know the following morning but but it is an absolutely legitimate consideration for a grown-up, yeah, know I've used this phrase a few times now, a grown-up consideration is, there's such a thing as your turn. What if everybody got to live as long as they wanted? What would this world look like then? You see, what makes us think that the world is here to sustain our refusal to, to turn the page and be overtaken by the you know procession of days Mm. what makes us think that there's enough in this world to indulge that in us what makes us think that the refusal to die is not one of the more inhumane steps we take in a human life Mm -hmm. so there it is see there's no should in that no there's nothing you can translate into another kind of religion it's still something you have to wrestle. It's not easy. Would that there were real guides about this instead of sort of teachers about it, that there were exemplars. But all the exemplars of what I just talked about <laughs> are dead, aren't they? Or in the act of dying as we're speaking right now. And so you don't get to, you know, hang out with them. What you do get to do is hang out with their brief but intense
0: example.
1: Well, we got time for one more question. Yes,
0: I want to ask you about your music. I've just been listening and I really hope, are you coming? Well, first things first, are you coming to, are you still going to tour? I know it's unknown at the moment, but what's happening (laughs) with the tour? Is there any word on that?
1: Well, we had a 70-city tour, international, four-continent tour lined up for this year. And needless to say, it all got canceled. Ah, and, and so, so the, the dream, all that it is right now, is that a combination of vaccines and changes in weather and God only knows what else is going to be necessary uh, to enable uh, some of us to travel, uh, we'll probably do so. We certainly mean to do so and does that bring us across the pond i certainly intend for it to to do so we our plan was this year we're going as far as israel and turkey on the tour this year and we'll be be able to revive the full extent of it i doubt it very much but uh our our scheme is a strange one we um, rely on local organizers to pull the gigs together and in that sense it's a, um, There's something grassroots and radical. That's what the word radical means. It means of the root pertaining to the root of things. And there's something, uh, I guess, radical and radicalizing about people deciding that they're going to write a love letter to their town in the form of having you come and play. But that's what they do. And our job is for two and a half hours to read that love letter out loud so that the townsfolk who appear understand themselves to have been considered when they didn't know that they were being so, so yeah so yes i'm certainly hoping to do it
0: mm. amazing well it's called mm. nights of grief and mystery will be
1: yeah that's the that's the enterprise if you will yes. the the band has no name uh, we don't know what this thing that we do should properly be called genre wise although <laughs> i'm tempted to call it gospel music and leave it at that <laughs>
0: That's yeah. a very good point. It's, it's definitely the most unique music I've heard and hmm. promises to be a, an incredible night, no doubt. I'll be giving my listeners a taste of the music and they'll also be. Oh, able great. To what receive. are you going to play? Uh, well, actually, I, I've had it for one of my favorites. I'll, I'm going to get it up for you right now. One second, Steve. Okay. Well, my favorite was I found the story of the nurse. I believe it's in Tear. Oh, yeah. Is it Tear? tears and things or regrets it's in one of those no it's neither
1: the the nurse you're talking about uh could either be the dying nurse is it that one or is it the the nurse who stayed
0: it's the nurse who stayed that's it oh yeah
1: that's the tears and things yes tears
0: and things that's that's the one I will be playing
1: it's an amazing story yeah
0: it really is but just the combination and I just before you head off I'd love to hear about how just very briefly uh, just the short version of how you came to collaborate with Gregory and it's just yeah I don't don't know how one would would find that collaboration it's very unique
1: yeah I'm not sure I found it (laughs) it's like you know the old uh, saying that uh, about romance uh, that I chased her so hard that she finally caught me (laughs) yeah it was something like that I I had no desire to be a Performer, I'm a shy person and I don't come to it easily. And but I had less desire to collaborate. <laughs> so yeah. it makes it makes me a Leo, obviously, and uh, and nobody to have you know collegial fun with. But this guy, uh, you know, we met by accident, and it was clear from uh, his music that he had his feet uh, firm mm. and we would actually be able to collaborate rather than one of us accompany the other and the collaboration has been magical and it's been a deep challenge to us both and uh, and then to perform which we've done now for five years mm-hmm. uh has been exceptional but but these these latest two records uh, we have three out now but these two have come out together just last week um they were our opportunity to create from a standing start um, wor- work that we weren't doing live yet when we had the, the uh, idleness imposed upon us in the early spring. This is what we did with it. And um, I was listening to it the other day quietly here in the house on a cheesy little uh, <laughs> CD player, which I'm um, glad Gregory wasn't around because he would have hated it. Yeah. And I, I just listened to the whole thing. And I looked up and I realized that I loved it. Wow. You know, and yes, I loved the fact that I was in it. Yes, I loved the part that I put, that's all true. But I just loved that it's in the world and that it's unapologetically taking its little place uh, and and proceeding otherwise. Hmm. So it's called, you know, one of them's called Rough Gods, which is a fair characterization of the time we're in. Hmm. And the other one's called Dark Roads also a fair characterization so these are both children of their times but you could call them elders of their times at the same time
0: Wow! oh that is that is so beautiful to hear and yeah that music and the links will be available to all our listeners um, should they find themselves very interested to check it out and i thoroughly recommend you do because it truly is unique. Stephen, thank you so much uh, for joining me. Uh, That was just, yeah, that was, that was a bit of a dream for me, to be honest. It was very great to chat (laughs) with you. I can't, yeah. I can't describe how grateful I am, but thank you so much.
1: Yeah, I can hear it. And I I appreciate that you're grateful. And I'm grateful too, in that uh, you've imagined I might have something that I could come up with on relatively short notice that might be worthwhile hearing it could turn into something useful for people who who are accustomed to tuning you in and I hope I haven't brought down the production value of the arrangement too much right. in the proceedings and answered too long and probably I have but but you're very kind and uh, you know I appreciate the the recognition and and the uh, the you know small part I might play in in your considerations and unfortunately I'm no help at all in your dating life clearly <laughs>
0: Ah, well, so right. I've still got time. Well, who okay. knows, actually. Um, thank you so much, Stephen. Yeah, no, honestly, you're thank welcome, you. You're
1: welcome, sir. Yeah, you're welcome. Take care of yourself. Cheers. Okay, bye-bye.
0: Bye. Well, there we go. I really hope you enjoyed that. It was an absolute wonder for me. I learned so much. For those of you that are interested in diving into Stephen's work in a bit more detail, uh, do head to the show notes where I'll have an array of links for you to check out also have an episode episode nine i believe the other world of the into the void podcast which explores die wise in a a bit more detail so you might be interested in that but now though i have a special treat for you i'm going to play one of steven's songs off the rough gods album this is called tears in things i really hope you enjoy it and as always if you did enjoy the content do make sure you subscribe as i have plenty more to come Okay, guys, have a lovely week and I'll see you all soon. Bye, everyone.
1: We leave a hole when we come here. Then we leave a hole when we go. And then it happens again. And that's life. Now, there at the beginning, it's all feminine. That's how wild it is. At first... Every one of us is womankind. That's how life begins. For a second, before it breaks in two, it's one, the she of everything. A mankind's necessary, but we aren't inevitable, though. Something has to happen. Something has to change. Has to stop being what it was. If you're born a girl child... You've a rumor swirling that you had a home and you had belonging once. And there's proof there inside you, a rudiment of that old watery house there in your middle. And no matter what comes of it later, still will always be a sign that you came from somewhere, that you belong, that your longing belongs. Now, you're born a boy, same rumour, but there's a feeling about a home, and there's a sense that it's not always been this way. And that's all there is. And you will look for home forever thereafter. You may spend many of your days pleading for one woman at least to agree to be home. One or two may sit still long enough that it'll seem that way to you. But it won't last, son. It's not supposed to last. You know that. It's there in your sighing after love. So life goes. And there's a mournful little thing that happens in the life of a young boy. That motherly forever well, that lasts just long enough for you to miss it when it goes. And it goes. And that body, the starred and storied vault of heaven, all you've ever known of the kind world, it turns from you. And it won't turn back. You hardly survive. And you, in your ragged sorrows, just then, are to make out love just there, in the leaving. That kind of love is confusing for the stoutest hearts. And your boy's heart is not one of those. life goes, and a generation later, more or less, your mother will have the ailments of age. The family will take turns worrying, learning drug names, visiting... And you'll grow used to that too. Endings are considered for a moment, then banished. You won't read the signs. Not really. You'll have to be told. And you'll have to make up your mind that you're in an ending. A big one. Now your mother lays dying. Freed by the war from the old decorum. She smoked in public because she could. Nobody talked about emphysema then. But you're talking about it now, though, with a nurse. She takes you into a room down the hall in private. She tells you, you have to stop suctioning. You have to stop everything. She's emphatic. Tell your family. Make them understand. They have to Stop. So you sit vigil, one endless hour at a time. And then it ends. And she goes to the ground. Or to the flame. And the old hurt comes on now. And you're left to decide what everything means. Well, it means that you're an old orphan now. That's what it means. That kind of love life has for you is so confusing for the clearest running of hearts and a man's heart with his mother dead is not one of those there is an electrical storm that breaks out in the mind when parents die be they gentle or gigantic in you be they kind, carnivorous, cantankerous, catastrophic or full of care. Whether some part of you flirts with relief at the thought of their death or is undone beyond surviving it still, when it comes, it lets loose a gale of life so adamant, so unnerving. The storm might seize a man by his breath, by the short hairs on his neck, by his very words, and it may not move on. And for a few hours, maybe a day or two, maybe a fortnight, that man may be more alive than he knows how to be. And his old strategies for safeguarding the borders of himself, they're dust now and no more. In the heat of all that, in the storm of the heart, well, you'll have your mother's wake. You have the heart of a boy and little else. You're a husk. And you'll have her wake. And there'll be the sleepwalk of stories and the, I'm sorry for your loss and she's in a better place. But there, Amongst the stories and the slow gin and the guests, there'll be the nurse that helped you more than you knew bring your mother across the line and see her down those long few days ago. You're a particular sort of man just now, an unguarded man. And she's seen so much of you, and she's a witness to that. So you'll fall to careful, whispered sorrows and thanks between you and stories from the long midnight wait and the vigil. And she is the truest woman that you've known just then. The only woman that you've been known by like that. And she knows that, or some of it. She can see something of you Rise to her that you can't see, and won't see. So the guests will leave to their lives and their ones and their twos, and she doesn't leave with them. You know next to nothing about the motherless magic of these days, but you know that she won't leave. You rise to put away the glasses, the bread, the wine. And there's the night there, between you. A day and a night later, she goes through the door to her life. You won't see her again. For that great while though, and for a short while after, Well you know something of how vast life really is, of how true the naked man and woman can be, how the homelessness can heal, how there's weather in love, and how it can be so confusing.